0: Welcome to the Masters in Psychology Podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Marie helwig Larson to the show. Dr. Larson is a professor in the department of psychology at Dickinson college in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. She started her career at Dickinson college in 2002 and has also served as psychology department chair and health studies chair. More recently, she has written many articles on a variety of topics during the pandemic. Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey and discuss how she is applying her education and experience in social psychology, health psychology, and cross-cultural psychology. Marie, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule and just before you're going to go on vacation to meet with us and, and share some of your experiences and advice. To start us off, tell us what originally sparked your interest in psychology.
1: So I grew up in Denmark and after high school, I was trying to figure out what my future paths were. And I had the opportunity to study abroad at Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania. And I actually was not an exchange student because I was not enrolled at a Danish university. And um, it was an amazing culture shock uh, and uh, moving to, to rural Pennsylvania for the year. And I would also say, to be fair, I wasn't exactly prepared for the level of undergraduate work in a language that I had obviously learned English in school, but not exactly to the proficiency of college level learning. So sitting with your Danish English dictionary, which back in the day is the (laughs) way we looked up words and and trying to slog through a college level textbook was, was really challenging. Uh, but it was also really fun and really opened up my world. And the most exciting class I took that year, I took classes in English and biology and, and communication, um, was a class in human sexuality, which I just thought was so fascinating. And it's, of course, an interdisciplinary topic, although it was taught by a psychologist. And that's a class that I myself, uh, many years later, got have taught many times, and I actually got to teach it a year I lived in Copenhagen um, to American students who were studying abroad in Copenhagen, which was a really particularly fun setting because you could bend some of the topics to, to the, the culture that, you, that we went. So, so Danish perspectives on sexuality was definitely a part of the course.
0: So you mentioned that you went to California State University, Northridge. And um, was there a particular reason why you selected that college? university? So by
1: then I had returned from Sliver Rock and was back in Denmark for several years and then I came back to the U.S. and by then I was actually a transfer student which many people don't know can be particularly difficult to enter as many competitive universities like UCLA for example just has very small number of transfer student spots. Um, so, so I was picking based on geography and I later on really came to see what a great university it was, but I wouldn't say that I had the tools to understand that at the time. I mean, you can look at who's there, right? But it's hard to figure out what that means in terms of the classroom situation. So what I found was that it was really great to be at a big university in which there were many classes offered and many professors, but the classes weren't that large and there was a a big commitment to teaching. So it ended up being a great place for me where I really thrived, but I can't say that I could have deciphered all of that before I applied.
0: And then you went on for your uh, master's and your doctorate uh, over at UCLA. Were you considering any other schools at that point or why did you choose UCLA? I did UCLA?
1: consider other schools in the area, USC, um, I, I, you know, Claremont uh, Graduate School and so on, um, and I did interview at at the multiple schools. And UCLA definitely had the the best prestige and the best um, financial compensation package of any of the other schools. Um, So so that ended up being the factors that I considered. Again, I would say that it's really hard to decipher from the outside what the experience is like. Um, And now I think the graduate programs invite students As they're considering applying, but at least at that time, there was really no opportunity to reach out to other current graduate students. I I think you now could find their email addresses online, right, and call them. But at the time, it was actually hard to figure out what is it actually like? Like, what do you do every day? Like those kinds of basic questions. And graduate programs, of course, differ even within social psychology, right, making it even more confusing. So, some social psychology PhD programs have a lot of coursework, and some mostly want you to focus on your research right away. Some have very tight and collaborative um, cohorts of students who come in, and some are more, you know, you on your own, essentially uh, trying to sort this out. And and none of all of that I figured out after the fact, (laughs) not not before the fact. (laughs) So, I think that students today have perhaps more tools and opportunities to find out some of the experiences, for example, of the students who are currently in the program.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, it's not only challenging for graduate students to get into a graduate school, uh, let alone somebody who is transferring and uh, somebody who's coming outside of the United States. Did you find any of the challenges were still there when you went to UCLA? And if so, can you kind of speak to those? Or did that kind of settle down once you got in, and you were able to prove, hey, I got into Northridge, now I can continue on my education?
1: Yeah, so graduate school is definitely not undergraduate school, as anyone who has done right. both can attest to. And when you are in a extremely competitive program, PhD program, such as UCLA, I think everyone experienced some degree of imposter syndrome and, and wondering when they'll really find out who you really are. And then, of course, over time, you settle into your new role and new roles and you figure out what it is that this situation requires of you. So in that sense, every new institution, whether it's at the undergraduate or master's or PhD level, requires you To read the room, if you will, or get mentoring and advice from both older students, but also from people who might not be your assigned mentor, right? It could be someone else who's just good at explaining what is actually what you're supposed to do. In other words, how to read the secrets of how to be successful and explain them to you.
0: Very good points. If you look back at your experience at uh, UCLA, both through your master's and your your doctorate, what were some of the fondest memories that you had at UCLA?
1: So really having a community of inquiry with fellow students and of course, access to amazing faculty and learning from the other students. So having the freedom to have a very long lunch in which you of course talk about non-work things, but also really just get to explore what your fellow students are exploring, right? So in graduate school, you are fundamentally asking questions that no one knows the answer to yet, right? Because that's why you're collecting the data and doing the research. And even if you had lunch just with other social psychologists, I mean, they studied really different things from what you studied, right? Interpersonal relationships, which I don't study at all. Um, the the effect of eyewitness testimony on people who testify. So all these different topics, even though they didn't directly influence my own area, just created this um, openness to, to asking questions, which is really what I find most excited exciting about my current job as well. So of course, to be fair, not to make it all sound like that's all we did was work, um, being part of a major um, university is of course fun, right? You could go to any Bruins game, You could play softball with your fellow graduate students. Uh, We had an award-winning flag football team that um, was actually um, coached by one of your other podcast people um, who have been on, Bob York.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So, so Bob was the coach and we uh, beat handedly the other graduate and undergraduate teams in flag football, which, of course, was, was a lot of fun. So big universities or small universities, for that matter, offer a variety of other fun activities just by the nature of having undergraduates um, there as well.
0: The other thing that comes to mind is I know you mentioned some of the reasons why you uh, attended Northridge and then why you attended uh, UCLA. Um, while you were searching for those, what was the most important things or thing for you when selecting a graduate psychology program?
1: So definitely financial aid or affordability. Um, I was fine with taking out loans, but obviously different programs offer different packages um, and taking out more loans was nice to avoid. Not the only factor, what one factor, obviously location because I was tied to Southern California Um, And definitely the prestige. Um, I would rather go, if I could, to a more prestigious uh, institution. And I think now, looking back at those three things, um, I definitely encourage students to, to be willing, if they can, to open up their location. Maybe you don't need to open it up to the entire United States, but maybe you also don't need to live in your hometown, even though your hometown has a couple of universities. Um, It's two to five years you can learn from living in a different institution or a different city, a different location, even if you eventually return to closer to home. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wasn't able to do that, but I always recommend that students try to be open to different locations. Um, I also, of course, understand that students need to look at affordability um, as I did. but it is possible also to fund your graduate education supplied by loans, which I did, uh, Mm -hmm. even though it was well-funded. Prestige is tricky because it really depends on what your goals are and fit, I would say in general, is much more important than prestige and your own investment into it, but people still are snobs and they still look at your degree, And being in a top rated, I think UCLA is still ranked first or second in social psychology, definitely does give people's attention. Uh, Now, of course, you need to do something after that, (laughs) (laughs) just having gone to a good school. Um, But initially, people do pay attention to that.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. Some other guests also. Talk about, um, you know, advising uh, those who are seeking a graduate degree in psychology. What do you want to do afterwards if you want to stay in the academic environment? Mm-hmm. If you want to go outside, go into, uh, you know, uh, clinical work, start your own business, then it really, de- you know, uh, that also helps uh, uh, determine where you should go and, and how much uh, time you should spend on your education. Any, mm-hmm. any other advice that you can think of for graduate, uh, you know, students looking for a graduate degree in psychology?
1: Yeah, so the three pieces of advice I routinely give, um, the first one is really a good idea to take a gap year between your undergraduate and whatever graduate degree you pursue. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is of course, just it can be good to get the experience (laughs) of, of either getting more clinical experience if that's the direction or more research experience. Um, but there's also a practical aspects that students often don't think of is that most applications happen in the fall. and the fall of your senior year is not just a busy time for you, but it's also a time where you have actually not done your most impressive work, perhaps, or your most advanced courses, or you are in two classes that haven't yet fully happened in which the professor who's writing your letter will get to know you even better. So having the space to finish out your senior year and fully invest in getting to know your professors, which is actually a second somewhat independent point, is it's so important to get to know your professors. Even if you have small classes, your professor can't say that much if you never say anything. Mm -hmm. So sometimes students just assume that because you know their name that you know them, but there's not a lot to say And it's the rich and detailed letter recommendation that gets someone attention, not, you know, she got these grades or wrote a nice paper. Sure. But and and that's, of course, even more important if you are attending a large undergraduate institution in which your professors don't know your name. Mm -hmm. Um, If you can take advantage of, per, per the point about getting to know your professors, take advantage of getting involved in the honor society in psychology, a psychology club, uh, go to psychology speakers, ask good questions, volunteer at events. So so think about that a letter recommendation is a personal reference, right? So the more the person can say, the professor, about you, um, the, the better. So, um, Students often worry about grades, which I talk to them about and grades are important. um, And it's especially important in key classes like research methods and statistics, if you're going into a a, a PhD rather than a clinically oriented program. Um, But again, how you interact with your professors around grades also goes into these personal letters of recommendation. So arguing about grades just leaves a negative impression instead of saying, I didn't do as well as I'd hoped. Can you help me figure out how to do better? So I wouldn't say grades are not important. They are. Um, But it's also important that you are managing your own anxiety around grades and your interactions with professors who are going to write letters for you, which speak to more than what you did, right? But also how you acted professionally.
0: Very good advice. Thank you. Um, What I found interesting about your Vita is after you finished your uh, doctorate, You landed a job at the University of North Florida, and then the University of Florida before your position as a visiting scholar, I think it was the National Institute of Public Health in Denmark during a few summers, and then you were also an assistant professor during the same time at the Department of Psychology at Transylvania University. So how did you find these uh, two opportunities, the one in Denmark and the one in Transylvania?
1: So the, my academic career, which actually also goes to advice I give my students, it is not uncharacteristic of how many careers happen, which is not linearly. right? So I moved to, to Florida, and I was unable to find a permanent position, which is why I taught both at North Florida and at the University of Florida and also at a community college. So I was piecing together a career, and then I applied nationwide going back to our earlier conversation about being willing to move Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when I then got the job at which was a tenure track position at at uh, Transylvania University and I moved then to Kentucky so so these opportunities just is a good reminder that things happen in a you know haphazard seemingly way and it felt haphazard at the time where you just lean into the opportunities that are afforded and learn from them. And then you use those opportunities going forward. Um, At the same time that I was four years in Florida and then four years in Kentucky, I was also wanting to connect with my family in Denmark. And because we're professors who don't have to be on campus in the summer, I thought it would be really fun to live in, in Copenhagen in the summers. And I used my contacts at the Cancer Society and the National Institute of Health to get positions in the summer in which I had you know, a specific, I, I mean, I was essentially a consultant, right? They would say, we really need you to write this paper, or we need you to sort out this detail. And then I engaged over several summers with these uh, communities, um, often on topics that I didn't subsequently study, like suicide, suicidal ideation, which is not really in, in my area, right? But you still would learn a lot from working with other people. Um, and I welcome that even though it wasn't directly in my own line of work. And I'm not working with those people now, but that's okay. You you can benefit from from the the experience as it were. And then eventually I ended up just doing my own work in the summer um, and getting uh, funding from from, uh, two different NIH grants that I've gotten that supported my cross-cultural research by paying for me to be in Denmark in the summer, um, which was also amazing.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I actually uh, had this ready for us to uh, share. I believe this is uh, uh, NIH and then the Division of Cancer Control and Population uh, Sciences, a good write-up, and and they had a good interview with you here. But based on your Vita and some of your work uh, and your research, I assume that uh, you you were funded partially or if not all for that one uh, research uh, when you were traveling over there as well on this. And this kind of leads us to our next transition. And uh, in 2002, you began your illustrious career at uh, Dickinson College in uh, Pennsylvania. So uh, you alluded earlier that you had to start your search a little bit more and expand your search. So tell us how and why you selected uh, Dickinson to start your career and and, uh, go that direction.
1: Well, it's another good example of how it looks (laughs) like it just all fell into place. I had never heard of Dickinson College (laughs) before I applied. There are many, many, many liberal arts colleges in the Northeast um, and I didn't have any particular connection or knew about it. And they were looking for a cross-cultural psychologist. And um, again, you don't really know what you're walking into, right? You try and, and ask in the interviews, you try and ascertain by asking questions but it's difficult for you to know what th- something is like, right? What what it, what will it really be like? And I have really come to love, I, I, I was also skeptical of moving to a small town. Carlisle has about 20,000 people in it. Um, and you don't know what you don't know, right? So I have really come to to love living in a small town uh, in part because I travel a lot and I spend some in Copenhagen. But nevertheless, that was an unexpected delight as was the university, which has a really strong uh, teacher scholar model in which they really support the research, and it's just along with being a good teacher, of course, and I I love working with my undergraduate students in my lab. It's really fun. It's one of the joys of many um, is to get to mentor students and teach them to be um, scholars, and I often uh, conduct my research and and publish with my students.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I do have this uh, shared screen again on uh, your social identity and risk lab is what you're referring to. And I did see some of the research and uh, some of the uh, students, graduate students that uh, participate in that. Tell us a little bit more for our audience, uh, the importance of taking up that opportunity to get involved in a lab and, and how that might help them uh, during their graduate career and moving forward.
1: Yeah. So I, we only have undergraduate students at Dickinson, so they... Okay. Come to Dickinson because they expect to be in small classes and and work on research in the classes, which of course they do in the psychology department at Dickinson, where we have actually uh, four required laboratory-based courses: research methods, statistics, and then advanced research methods. And I teach one in in. Um, advanced research methods and social psychology, where we actually often focus on my research on stigma, and they get to collect their own data and and write it up. And that's amazing. And students really, really enjoy that. And they really see the benefits regardless of what their future careers are in understanding data, right? So that's that's an important point. Sometimes students go, well, I that's not what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to go and work for Facebook, or I'm going to work in a nursing home. They have varied career goals. And I think I'm at maybe not convince all of them, but a lot of them that that being able to do research, even if you subsequently don't do research yourself, allows you to be a sophisticated consumer of research, which everyone almost needs to do regardless of what their jobs are. Um, So that. Of course, (laughs) it's just one type of experience. And it is so important, again, regardless of what your career is, if you can at all, as an undergraduate student, get to work in someone's lab. And again, it doesn't have to be tied to that you want to get a PhD, but it's tied to that what happens in a lab is a small collaborative setting in which you learn all kinds of professional skills. I often talk to my students about professional issues or thorny issues or ethical issues. they, they get to sometimes when they get a little older, I've worked in the lab, they get to mentor younger students who are entering the lab. So there's all these leadership opportunities in the lab that are incidental, but also critically important to actually learning the research. Um, and then of course, that's the, the actual research, right? So they're now working with me and other students in the lab. And it could be anything. It could be developing a technique. Um, it could be, Uh, writing a lab report, it could be collecting data, or it could be actually writing it up. So I have many students who work with me and get these experiences, and of course, it's the few fewer of them, obviously, who get to actually move a paper towards publication. I also take students to conferences, which is another great opportunity, Um, Students sometimes also think about what I can put on my resume, and again, as I'm sure you have told many a student, uh, no one cares what's on your recipe, resume if you can't talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. No one cares that you studied abroad if you can't say how it changed you, uh, what you learned, and that's also true for of working in a lab, and I help my students think through how to articulate the leadership experiences or research knowledge or skills that they learned in my lab.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned uh, studying abroad, and and I think we mentioned it earlier in our discussion as well. You had the opportunity to become a visiting professor at the Danish Institute for Study Abroad in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, and I believe that was the time when you started looking at the differences and similarities between U.S. and Danish regarding the effects of stigmatization and the willingness to quit smoking. I'm going to share my screen again and uh, highlight a couple things for our audience. Number one is uh here's uh kind of a a summary if you go to google scholar many of our audience knows that you know that you can go to google scholar and then you can sort by year and here's one down here does it help uh smokers if we stigmatize them and then you looked at the differences between and uh and similarities between these two and then you also had a nice um Uh, YouTube video on this. Now, I'm not sure if this was related to that particular study or if it was a continuation of that, but this uh, short uh, two-minute, 20-second video was kind of interesting, uh, showing that. Give us a high-level summary of some of the findings, if you can kind of recall what you found out between the Danish and the U.S.
1: Sure. Sure. So this was all funded by two different NIH grants. And in the first, I focused on cross-cultural differences and how smokers think about their risks. And then the second, I focused on the how smokers react to being stigmatized. So they're related, but independent. So I can easily summarize the findings of both. Of both. So in the first grant, we uh, I was interested in exploring why exactly Danes thought that their risk was less than American smokers thought that Their risks were of smoking um, how they explained in their own mind the risk that they took with smoking so we did an interview smoking but i was also interested in whether smoking had become less moralized in denmark than it had in the us in other words you feel that people are blaming you or think you are a bad person because you're smoking and we found that danes did think that they were less at risk personally for smoking and it was basically less bad to smoke for your health than American smokers thought, but they also resisted this idea that they should be labeled as bad people. So they thought there was more responsibility for non-smokers to avoid the the smoking that they put out rather than it being all their duty. Um, So, and they thought there was more of a negotiation that ought to take place around shared spaces. Whereas Americans, smokers just accepted that they could not smoke in many different settings and that the non-smokers' beliefs about their smoking won, essentially, in these in these awkward social situations where you negotiate. Um, both Danes and Americans liked it better when there were clear rules because then you avoided the negotiation. So if somebody at a party just said, and remember, a lot of this research was done over 10 years ago, which doesn't seem long ago, but it does in how smoking has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, both smokers and as both smokers in Denmark and the U.S. said it was easier when a host just said you can't smoke inside instead of leaving it to some kind of awkward, well, where well, ashtray set out inside, and who's smoking, and where am I supposed to go? And so, so both Americans and Danes thought this negotiation a- around smoking was exhausting. So that was the first. So that just focused on this issue of moralization. Um, The second set of studies, we also looked at Denmark and the US, obviously following along the same line, but we were much more directly interested in how smokers reacted if you reminded them that they were devalued uh, or stigmatized. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did that in a variety of different ways. We had them smoke in front of a mock interviewer, um, which they definitely did not like. And that made them super stressed out. (laughs) (laughs) We also had them just read about how devalued smokers are in dating and employment and housing and so on. Um, And then in the last study, we actually ostracized them. So we actually did an online study while I was in England uh, directing a program there. I worked with a British uh, student. And we played a little game that's well-known Uh, I was skeptical that it would work. Um, It's called Cyberball, and uh, people play online thinking that they are playing a ball tossing game with other participants, um, but they're not. And what's fascinating is that when you randomly assign them to the group in which they don't get the ball by the other two people who ostensibly are not playing the ball to them um, compared to the you're sharing the ball playing equally, people feel really um, bad about that, even if they have heard about cyberball, or know that maybe or they're doubtful that you really were playing it with two other people. And it isn't just an artificial environment, which of course it is people still feel really bad. So smokers in all of these studies, uh, definitely felt it stressful to be ostracized or stigmatized, but it also led them to be more interested in, in quitting.
0: While you were talking, I brought up cyberball because I've never heard of that. And uh, it's interesting that you were able to utilize that in, the, in, in your study. Um, one thing that came to mind when you were describing your first part of the study was I traveled abroad uh, many times. And back then, they didn't really have, especially over in Europe and, and uh, that area, didn't really have no smoking signs. To your point, it's changed so much. In your study, did you find that it was mostly in those socially ambiguous situations about hey whether it was allowed versus you enter this restaurant it says no smoking well there's the rule then i know you know what i should follow kind of talk to me about that for a second
1: yeah definitely so they liked the lack of needing to negotiate it especially socially but even in the workplace it was often fraught because if the boss smoked then you felt that you had to go outside with the boss Mm-hmm. Right, so so there's all these social mechanics that are actually removed if you just don't allow smoking in the workplace. Now there's other reasons why it's a good idea to not have smoking in the workplace, right? Because it encourages people to quit. Um, but there are also all these other mechanics, and those are tied to feeling that you are devalued. So one of the things that was fascinating too about the cyberball study is that we actually were able to convince, and I think people did believe that largely, um, that the other people that they were playing with were non-smokers. So we only had smoking participants. And they were told that the other people were not smokers that they were playing with. And then we would told them specifically that the other people they were playing with didn't know that they were smokers, that that the participant was a smoker or they did know it. In other words, we made the stigma either concealed or revealed. And and that goes back to the awkwardness of this negotiation is in order for you to smoke, you have to be revealed, right? You have to reveal what smokers themselves experience as a highly stigmatized identity. So what happens then when you can conceal it? And what we found in the the Cyberball study is that people still felt devalued and they still thought that others did not want to play with them because they were smokers even though we had told them explicitly that the other people did not know that. And they said, well, I still think that's why.
0: Wow, that's interesting. You mentioned earlier that you uh, had the opportunity to go to England. So I'm gonna go back to that because more recently in 2019 uh, up through 2021, you were the director of the Dickinson Science Program first in 2019 to 2020 in England. And then again, the following year in Denmark. So tell us a little bit more about these programs and how you found or created those positions.
1: So these are long time um, programs that Dickinson College has um, abroad. The one in England has been there for more than 25 years. And it has always had a faculty director who was there living there for two years and getting to know themselves, what it's like being abroad, um, learning more about the British university system, which is very different from the American system. And then of course, supporting the students uh, experience abroad and teaching a class. So I had the opportunity to uh, apply for this because we have programs uh, and directors in many places in the United States. And what was interesting, just as a side note, as a good advice for the students, is sometimes not getting something gives you other opportunities. So there's been a popular movement of the things I didn't get CV instead of things I was successful CV. So I want to highlight the fact that just because I got to go in 2019, which was amazing, and I'll return to that in a second, I actually also applied for it about 10 years before and didn't get it and it did this two-year position in England. And then I instead went to Copenhagen and taught, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, um, American students who were studying abroad in Copenhagen, which ended up being an amazing experience that year. My daughter went with me and went to a Danish high school and learned Danish and learned Danish culture much better than she knew, um, and met her now husband uh, while she was in, in high school there. So so my point is that one opportunity um, you you just have to be brave and seek out opportunities. And that doesn't mean you're going to be successful, but it can lead to other opportunities, right? And this was one example of that. So in any case, just because you apply for something doesn't mean you get it. But when I applied the second time, I did get it. And because there's so many directors who have had this position before at my college, I actually relied a lot on their past course. I taught a course on the history of science, which was really, really fun, totally outside of my wheelhouse, Uh, a great opportunity to learn uh, new things. And I uh, took them to London for three weeks in which we did all activities tied to the history of science class, also relying on the past directors who had been in this position. And then March of 20 happened. (laughs) <laughs> so the students were sent home. We did not have any students there the following year um, at all, uh, because it didn't make sense to send students into a British COVID land while they were taking classes at the British University online. right? That literally made no sense. So I asked my university for permission to be abroad the second year, but moved to Denmark instead. So instead of living two years in England, I lived one year in England and one year in Denmark and was teaching online, like everyone went online at that point, at that point, and was going to take a group of students then following the history of science class to Copenhagen instead, um, and that also got shut, shut down because of COVID.
0: Well, you, you, we didn't plan this at all, but very good transition leading up to COVID because my next question was actually going to be about uh, some of your work during COVID. And you, you have a few websites here that actually are very good resources for some of the research that you uh, conducted uh, during COVID. And, and one of them is this newspapers and magazines. Uh, I'll go back to this in one second. And then I wanted to highlight the articles for general audiences. And this is kind of nice because if you wanted to learn a little bit more about Danish, uh, wanted to learn a little bit more about what's going on around the world. Uh, you had some good resources here as well, but I don't want to steal your thunder. So tell me, uh, you know, what kind of prompted you to create, first of all, create these uh, two uh, websites and and kind of offer up the research that you conducted during COVID to uh, people and the general public?
1: Yes. So several things happened during COVID other than living in two different countries, Uh, um, One thing that happened is that I I started a research program with two former students, uh, one of them actually my daughter, um, and the three of us um, just went to work on creating um, a shared uh, research study during March of 20, um, collecting data in the US online, um, and we were particularly interested in the factors that contributed to people not taking precautions or being willing to take future precautions. We knew the vaccine was coming, so it wasn't there yet. So we knew it was would be there. So we also asked about their willingness to do things in the future. And that research team has so far published two papers, um, one looking at social norms and one looking at worry and perceived risk in predicting these outcomes. And we are working, uh, I'm right now working on a paper on looking at why conservatives were less le- less willing to take precautions. Uh, so the ideological gap. And um, another person on our team, my daughter, is looking at um, masculinity and precarious manhood and what role that played in the precautions. So that has been, that was just a really, really amazing opportunity. I've been wanting to get back to working with these students who graduated um, uh, at, at different years and different times. Laurel uh, Peterson is now a uh, associate professor at Bryn Mawr College. And my daughter uh, just got her PhD at NYU in social psychology and is working at a nonprofit catalyst that looks at um, creating uh, better opportunities for women in the workplace. So the three of us have worked together uh, during COVID and during you know, during and after are we after uh, the pandemic um, and, and collaborating. So that was really just a wonderful opportunity to connect with people that I have enjoyed working with and published with before um, and have really different knowledge and skills, which is always enjoyable.
0: The other So thing that's that I, one
1: thing, Oh, okay. <laughs> if you have any ahead. questions about that, I'll answer your questions about that, and then I'll talk more about the media work that I did.
0: No, go ahead and go into the media, I was okay. actually going to ask you. So the other thing you, that yeah.
1: happened, of course, is that the whole world was going, why don't people understand their risks? Um, <laughs> so the whole world uh, had this question, and I got to talk to many, many, many journalists about this question, uh, National Geographic, The New York Times, uh, several times, uh, NPR Marketplace, uh, and other outlets that all allowed me to describe the research on why people don't understand their risks, uh, which has now led me to consider writing a book, a popular book about this very topic, uh, looking at the well-established reasons that, of course, well-established from decades of research during COVID. Mm-hmm. So that's what all those references are to articles in which I was cited uh, by journalists who interviewed me. The third thing is that I, before COVID and during COVID, also have started writing for general audiences, so um, psychology has for years um, argued that we should do a better job of giving away psychology, um, and I felt that I was at a point in my career where I really uh, wanted to just talk about things I knew about, and I um, was funded to, to take a workshop in, in how to accomplish this, how do you reach out, what do you, how do you write. Uh, how do you get it published? And since then, uh, from 2018 on, I have written uh, four pieces, um, some of them focusing on Danish words like hygge and put, um, and um, which I'm happy to talk more about, and one actually focusing on my research on optimistic bias. So... So, and, and again, it's hard to know who's who's reading this. Uh, I published them all in the conversation, um, which tracks how many views or how many people click on, on the links. And at least the why Denmark dominates the world happiness report rankings year after year has been read by more than half a million people, which is a little bit more than, uh, you know, the, the the citation scholar you had up there earlier from Google.
0: <laughs> right, right, definitely. Um, what's also interesting is, you know, you started talking about the one uh, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, about uh, why we're so bad at assessing the risk. And then that kind of led into, you know, this one that uh, you were interviewed for uh, National Geographic as well. And then I'm not even going to try to pronounce this,
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Is that right?
0: Okay. All right. So yeah, that was referenced on both this one and then the the general audiences one as well. So I applaud you for getting that out because uh, yeah, getting half a million views on some of these uh, definitely helps increase the awareness of and then increase the interest in uh, these fields as well. So uh, I applaud you for that. Uh, You also had, um, as I mentioned, a few YouTube videos and uh, one of them I'm going to ask you about because I uh, uh, found it very interesting. I found some of the others about the smoking interesting, but the the one that was actually a little older in 2015, Australian Shepherd helps children develop reading skills. And uh, I found that one interesting. Tell us kind of if you can remember anything, the high level view of what you found uh, uh, using dogs or particularly this Australian Shepherd.
1: So this was all just community volunteering. I, I will make a connection in a moment for, for how working with the dog can can lead into advice for students. But this was um, I, I got a dog an Australian Shepherd is a bit like a Border Collie. Uh, it needs a job to do. And uh, I trained it and got it certified to work in the community. So I took her to nursing homes and hospices and. Orphanages and and so on. And the, what the video shows is part of that, which is not just supplying a dog for people to play with and pet, but also having the children read aloud to the dog. So I went to after school programs for several years in which she would, each child would come in one at a time and sit down and read aloud to the dog. Um, so so many jokes were made about how well-read my dog was, <laughs> for sure. And the idea is that children don't really like reading aloud and they find it anxiety-provoking and challenging and... Um, the non judgmental listener of the dog uh, can can provide a positive reinforcement in in the children reading, although to be fair, some of them just wanted to pet the dog (laughs) and put so much into the reading. (laughs) So so one of the things I really enjoyed uh, training uh, and and taking many classes, because it it, it really is good for the the dog to learn um, and and work, uh, not just physically, but with an active mind, is we once took a class that was called, um, not obedience training, which is very rigid, but improv obedience training, in which the whole idea is that you get a novel task and you have to get the dog and you working together to figure out how you can get the dog to do the task. So if you have to push a little buggy, like a little children's buggy, and the dog has never seen the, the buggy before, what would you tell it to do that you already know in your wheelhouse, right? like maybe touch it, right? Which Mm -hmm. might be a command that the dog has learned. Um, So that was a really, really fun class. And one of the commands we learned in that class that the dog learned was try something. So let's say you want the dog to knock over a book that's standing on its end. And the dog has no idea what you want, right? And you don't have a command for knock down the book. So what you do is that you tell the dog to try something. So the dog might uh, nose the book, you know, put the nose on the book or paw the book or um, lick the book, right? Depending on what the dog does and then you reinforce the correct behavior, mm-hmm. which of course the dog doesn't know what it is, you know, right? So, so I would often after class um, at the end of the semester, I have a little treat for students and take the dog in to show some of these commands, uh, which they always think is fun and the dog is fun, right? And eager to show off uh, its skills. And I often said to students, that's like the best command ever for humans, like try something right? and then have good people who can help you determine whether you're doing the right thing, right? You shouldn't just be randomly trying things like stand on the chair during class, right? But but try something new is okay, right? Even if you don't know exactly how to do it, especially if you have people guiding you. So be brave and try new things and good things can happen. And if good things don't happen, that's okay too.
0: And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned about try something, when you look at your Vita, you kind of look at, hey, you almost tried a lot of different things and you traveled and and you did everything and that's how you built up your CV and that's how you built up your experience as well. So um, tell me what you like most about your job. I know you received tenure in 2006 uh, and you've been a full professor of psychology since 2014 at Dickinson College. What do you like most about your job?
1: I, I love uh, working with my students. That is definitely, I, 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 they are inquisitive and interested and hardworking in general. And I love to see the, the changes that they make in their understanding and activities and, you know, research, but also non-research things. Um, I also love just the this, the a- attitude of collaboration and cross-disciplinary thinking that's characteristic of Dickinson College and many other colleges. I just love that you can ask the sociology or the economics professor something, or you can ask the students what they learned in those classes and how that bears out on what you're learning in social psychology. So I really love, the, you know, the students go abroad, they grow and develop and get perspectives from many different influences while they're there. And that affects my teaching and research. And of course, my collaboration with my colleagues as well. Mm
0: -hmm. So near the end of most of our podcast interviews, we have a few fun questions. And I'll start off with the first one. What is your favorite term, principle or theory? And why?
1: So definitely the the what I just talked about before this whole idea of concealed stigma, I, I have just never really honestly until I started doing this research thought about how hard people who feel devalued and stigmatized work to conceal their stigmas. How much smokers think about whether their clothes smoke or whether they should brush their teeth again. So this whole uncertainty about accidentally having your stigma revealed when you don't wish it to be so. So that actually gave me a lot of empathy towards people who I don't feel I stigmatize, but who nonetheless feel the pressure and anxiety about potentially experiencing stigma. So so that's really led, I've never smoked, but talking to smokers has definitely uh, enhanced my empathy for people who are not like me.
0: Okay. The next one, think inside and outside of academia. So what is something new that you have learned recently?
1: Uh, I, um, uh, (laughs) um, let's see, what have I learned recently? I have started uh, night hiking. Um, So I uh, hike occasionally on the Appalachian Trail which runs right through uh, Carlisle where I live. Um, And I joined a group that uh, hiked in the dark uh, all winter which I really did not think I was gonna like and I really did enjoy it. Uh, Which was surprising when you can only see what the headlight lights up on the trail.
0: Did you? Is it more of a day or a night? Or do you stay overnight as well? Do you camp?
1: Um, we did not do any, any camping, though. Um, okay. It was just the hiking after work. Okay. All right.
0: The- um, do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology?
1: Yes. One thing I think is that I wish I had known more about at the time was that you don't have to become a professor to put your PhD or skills that you have learned into use. So I didn't realize, excuse me, let's <coughs> get that bug out of my, I was mostly mentored to have the job that my professors had, and I now can see how many other jobs there are where you can put your skills to use, whether you're working for a social media organization or for nonprofit or in government research institutions. So... <coughs> Don't just think that the PhD is doing what the people who are now teaching you do, although that is a career. And I wish I had known more, not that I have any regrets about the career I have, but I wish I had learned more about the diverse ways that PhDs work out in the community in other settings.
0: Okay, good advice. Uh, One other fun question is, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do?
1: there's so many trips I want to go on. (laughs) That's really challenging. Um, I'd love to go on an adventure trip to New Zealand um, and hike and camp and kayak and engage with the amazing nature that I hear New Zealand has now that New Zealand seems to be opened up again.
0: Wow. I haven't even considered that. I love traveling myself and uh, I haven't even considered New Zealand. That's a good idea. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up uh, uh, during uh, this podcast or discuss during this podcast?
1: No, just uh, encourage students to seek out good mentors who can guide them um, on their path forward. And remember that there's many ways to reach a goal and it's okay if you don't know what how to reach your goals and it's okay that if it takes you longer to to reach the goals in a non-linear way or you know resist the pressure of of from that you sometimes get from others to have it all figured out it's it's okay to take <laughs> the time that it takes
0: well, that's good uh, reminder and reassurance. A lot of people I know when I started my uh, graduate career, I'm thinking I have to have everything laid out. Otherwise, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's actually not the case. Take one step at a time. And then uh, like you did, you, you eventually build up your CV and, mm. and build up those experiences. Marie, thanks again for sharing your story and advice with us. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and experiences. Uh, I wish you the best of luck, especially if you uh, continue working on that book.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.